Yo, it's Will P from Cartel, and you're listening to We Podcast and We Know Things. Oh. Hey, you caught me in the middle of something. This is Joe Rio from the band Hidden in Plain View, and you're listening to We Podcast and We Know Things. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of We Podcast and We Know Things. My name is Greg Hall, and alongside of me, as almost always, the best damn voice in the business, Sam Matura. Like our guest, we also are not like everybody else. We want to say a huge shout out and a huge thank you to Jesse Kinch, who we are joined by today, one of the most powerful voices we have ever heard. But before we introduce him, just want to say, hey, Jesse, happy early birthday, and thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, guys. Pleasure. Jesse has a record coming out June 1st called I'm Not Like Everybody Else. It actually just hit on vinyl available uh, on Amazon right now. The link to purchase that is actually going to be in this episode description. So go ahead and check out the description of this episode on Podbean, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can just one-click it right to get the album. It came out on Curb Records. He's also going on tour this week for a Record Store Day tour Uh Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, before we get into anything else, congratulations on the new record and the tour. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank is this you. is this your first, this is your debut album, right? This is my debut album. Um, we're, we're talking four years post uh, uh, Rising Star, so I'm really proud of it. I think the fans will be proud of it. Um, and I'm just trying to get out on the road and, and showcase all this this music to everybody. And I'm kind of glad to hear that you didn't just like release an album right away. Like you took four years, you took the time to put like, your energy and time into it. Like that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, you know, you only have one one chance at a debut album, and the worst thing that people do after these uh, singing shows, if if they win, they they get signed, they rush out an album. You know, they just they don't really sit down and come up with their own ideas or put their heart into it. They just kind of. Uh, have to sit around with some co-writers and come up with something that fits the radio and just kind of throw it on and hope to, hope it uh, makes it. So, uh, you know, I've had a lot of time um, to, to put my heart into this and to get exactly what I wanted and make sure that the songs are all uh, solid and melodic and full of heart and energy and passion. So, If the name Jesse Kinch does sound familiar to you out there listening, you may recognize him both from his voice, but also from his name from ABC's Rising Star, like he just alluded to, uh, the singing competition show on ABC. Jesse actually won that with the likes of Brad Paisley and Kesha and Ludacris as the judges. Um, So if you're like, oh, I've heard this name before. Well, here it is. uh, I would say live and in person, but we got him over the phone and I'll take it. (laughs) Uh, We'll start the questioning. Hey, Jesse, when did you first fall in love with music? Uh, I first fell in love with music when I, when actually before I even picked up a guitar, I picked up a guitar at the age of six, but when I was about four or five years old, uh, my parents would always play music on uh, our car rides and I would, they would play everything from hard rock to classic rock to operatic pop. And uh, I mean, just to name some bands, like everything from Led Zeppelin to the Doors to Nirvana to Pearl Jam to Rage Against the Machine. And when I talk about opera, I'm talking about Andrea Bocelli and Sarah Brightman. Um, <clears throat> so I, I was introduced at that age to passionate, uh, uh, soulful rock, but I was also introduced to uh, the elegance and beauty of, of opera and the, the great songwriting that, that, that came with that style. Um, so I, I had an appreciation for uh, many styles of music. I was very attracted to tra- traditional uh, songwriting and 
um, and rock and roll and uh, hard rock. I, I loved all of it. Uh, and then at the age of six, I, I, I picked up a guitar, and that's when I really fell in love with music. Now, you were um, from the local news stations and papers kind of called the Boy Wonder? Yeah, that that uh, that name came... Uh, Almost a nickname, Jackson. by the way. What, what was that? Awesome nickname, by the way. Oh, yeah. It kind of sounds like a child superhero. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that name came about when, uh, after I was uh, six years old I, and I, I had been playing guitar for a while, um, my parents noticed that uh, I had a kind of a precocious thing going on where uh, I had a mature sense of uh, rhythm and pitch and I was tuning my guitar by ear. And when I... <clears throat> When I first went into a club that you know that my parents got me into when I was about seven or eight years old, I was playing my guitar in front of in front of all these adults and guys that were smoking and uh, you know blowing tobacco in my face. And at eight years old, that was that was quite the experience. Like I got the, I got the rock and roll experience early on. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, you know I, I I played a number of songs for them on my guitar, and I, I wasn't singing it. Remember this? I was just a musician. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few days later, they wrote it up in the paper, and they had a, an article about all these adults that played that night. And then all of a sudden, they had me, Jesse Kinch, this eight-year-old, and they called me the Boy Wonder. <laughs> That's awesome. And they they were talking about my my guitar playing ability at such a young age. Mm. So then you then you started singing eventually, and I believe you were cast as Eddie Money in Two Tickets to Paradise. Yeah, so uh, I, I had started playing guitar in clubs, obviously, and when I was 11, I I found my voice, I started singing, and I discovered that I had a very uh, um, passionate, uh, convicted voice, and I, I knew that I had a lot of power behind my voice, a lot of volume, a lot of energy, uh, but I could still control my pitch very well, uh, and, and people people took notice that I, I uh, started performing around New York City, I was fronting my own band. And at age, uh, yes, at age 15, I, I was cast as the young Eddie Money, but see, that, that, that was a very interesting story because I, when I was 14, uh, I, I had opened up for Eddie Money at a club on Long Island. That's insane. I had opened up for him. I played a full set and I, I met him backstage very briefly and I know that he caught the show. Uh, and I, but I didn't really get to talk to him that much and, Story is that Eddie Money actually had gone to my high school wow. on Long Island mm-hmm. back in the sixties. Uh, so, so the the musical director of my school uh, at the time was good friends with Eddie Money, and one day I remember it was February of two thousand and nine. I get a call, uh, uh, and from the musical director, and he says, uh, "You know, Eddie Money, uh, the guy you opened up for." He's doing a, a musical about his life. He kind of wants to do a Jersey Boys type type show, and he's looking for a, a young kid to, to portray him, to portray him in his life in this uh, this musical he wrote. And uh, I, I I wasn't sure at first. I, I didn't I didn't really uh, know much Eddie Money music. I, I was more into the uh, psychedelic stuff of the '60s, and uh, I didn't know much of uh, '70s pop yet, um, which I would get get into later on, but. Uh, I, I, he told me this to kind of go down there as a favor. So, uh, I went down and 
funny thing is Eddie Money actually was expecting a, a 22-year-old kid to walk down there. Is he, he originally wanted a, a kid in his early or, or an adult in his early 20s to, to portray the young Eddie Money. And when he asked my musical director, uh, who's, who's that uh, 22-year-old kid that opened up for me? Musical director said, that kid's 14. I was, only, I, was only, I was only 14 at the time. So I, I walked down there, and uh, even though I was only 14, Eddie felt that, that I was the only one who really captured his, uh, his spirit. Wow. Which was the most important thing. He wanted somebody that was going to capture that young, energized, rock and roll-filled uh, spirit, uh, that, and, uh, who had a little bit of that rebelliousness in him. Um, while the, some of the other Broadway people that, uh, or the theater people rather that, that audition didn't, didn't necessarily have that rock and roll rebellious, uh, free spirited thing about him. So, um, I, I got the part within 10 minutes of, of auditioning <laughs> and uh, we did, we did rehearsals. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. We, we did rehearsals for months and, uh, I, and then in June of that year we did, uh, um, eight shows uh, uh, in two weeks. It was it was amazing. It was a great experience. That's a heck of a story. Yeah, it really top, is. How do you top that? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. Man, I did fourteen songs a night and, and eighty pages of dialogue. It was, it was Whoa. Uh, great. How long did a, how long did it take experience. you? How long did it take you to kind of memorize that? Uh, you know, I I don't I don't even remember. I I just remember. Uh, I just I just recall. Being very, very, very serious about it. Uh, after my uh, my my dad kind of stepped in the picture. He's he's he really has handled my career. And at first, I wasn't taking it as serious as, as I should have. And my dad kind of stepped in the picture and said, "You know, you have a very important task here, and you have to uh, you have to do this right. You have to portray this man's life, portray what he went through, and capture his essence and spirit." Uh, so. Within the you know three months of the play, I really just took time every single day, hours and hours a day, and looked over the dialogue and made sure I had all my inflections um, memorized and and made sure that I had all the songs uh, memorized and and uh, but but all in all, it was just a great experience. Yeah. And no. And uh, yeah. Would you say your dad inspired you to start making music? Well, my dad is a huge inspiration to me. My my dad is the one who really instilled uh, my. He instilled the this. First of all, he instilled this uh, perfection in me, where he would always tell me at a young age that you know you you have to put everything into your music. You should every single word and every song should be sung with conviction and passion even if it's just one inflection or it's just one word one syllable it should just be perfect it should be sung with uh with everything you've got uh that was one thing he instilled in me that that, that perfection uh perfectionism uh, but he also introduced me to all the music i love and between the music that that i listened to at a young age four or five in the car seat and then the music i listened to when I first got my record player, uh, my dad gave me his record collection. I, b- I bought a record player, and I, I really started getting into a lot of the obscure 60s music uh, other than the stuff that's 
that was able to cross over into my generation, uh, in the millennials, which was, uh, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Doors and Led Zeppelin. That, that, that stuff all did very well crossing over, but there was a lot of, a lot of music that my, my father introduced me to that, that didn't cross over as well. But uh, it, it's still so legendary. If you take stuff like the Birds and the Jefferson Airplane, uh, yeah. you know the Chambers Brothers, Fever Tree, uh, the Animals, stuff stuff like that. that, yeah. that I, I I lived on that music when I was uh, fifteen. And I have to thank my father for that because my father grew up in the sixties and seventies, uh, and, and that was the time where where rock and roll ruled the world. And, yeah. Uh, I, I, that was a time where people went out to the stores and. And when new music came out, they bought vinyl. They, they, it wasn't like you, you went on iTunes the morning you heard a song uh, coming out. You went out to the store and you bought it. So my, my father passed down his record collection to me, and I, I, I just embraced with with all my heart this music. I was fascinated by that uh, the songwriting, the, the the passion, the heart. Uh, and, the melodies and the, uh, the lyrics that just that came out of that time, and I have to, I just have to thank my father for showing me what true poetry is, what what true songwriting is, what a what a real vocal is. He showed he he opened my eyes to that at a, at a young age, um, and he also has been very instrumental in my my career and all the moves that I've made, and uh, he's always been a real force behind me. Uh, you know, and, and he's he's just a great manager in general. He he's really been handling my career. Um, That's awesome. And we just we we just make a great team in general. Mm-hmm. Now, before you you know became the artist that you are today, before Rising Star, before uh, I'm not like everybody else. Were you ever in any other projects, any bands with friends, or anything like that? When I was fifteen or fourteen or fifteen, I had a band called uh, Peace Bullet that I was fronting. Mm-hmm. And we we performed uh, in many clubs on Long Island in New York City. We we had done. Uh, we actually had opened up for an, an '80s rock band called Living Color when I was 15. Oh gosh! If, if you're, are you familiar with Living Color? Sam, Sam, Sam is geeking out right now. Cult of personality, baby. Like you're speaking my line of classic rock. This is all the music that I love. So. This is awesome. Well, well, well you got to do yourself a favor when when this interview is done. You have to go on YouTube and look up my version of Cult of Personality. I I would sing and play it at the same time. I will be doing that immediately. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, we we opened up for Living Color. We did uh, years ago, probably back in 2010, when that earthquake uh, happened in, in Haiti. We we did the Rock for Haiti benefit concert on Long Island, and like I said, we we performed in many clubs around New York City. Uh, in the tri-state area and that was back then uh and then obviously that when i turned 20 i uh that's that's kind of when i uh went on rising star but keep going guys well before we have we only have one question about rising star but before that what was for you the first show that you ever played the first show that i ever played well before i started singing i performed in clubs on Long Island with just my guitar. Right. So I, I guess I could consider that uh, or, or count that as a, a performance, but I, I think uh, I think uh, I, I'd consider my first real performances to be when I was singing and playing at the same time and fronting my own band. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
which was probably around the time when I was 11. I think it was a club. I'm pretty sure it was a club called Rock 45. I think that was what it was. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 or it could have been Session 73, one of those two. Rock 45 or Sessions, probably Session 73, actually. I was 11 years old, and that was the first time I, I sang and played at the same time. I think another one of the first shows I did um, was at a club called... Oh, forgive me, guys. I, I, it's, it's, this is a long time ago. We're talking... Uh, 11 or 12 years old here. It's crazy, though, that you are the age you are, and you can already say you've been doing this over a decade. Yes, I I can't believe it myself. I can't believe I'm sitting here at 23, (laughs) releasing my debut album, and I can say, my God, I was doing shows 10 years ago. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's special. That's amazing. That's special. That's something that not many people can say. So, obviously, you are, but you should be very, very (laughs) proud of that. Well, you know, I, I am very proud when I look back at it, and I I do have to thank my parents because there was a lot of bias when I was uh, at that age, being eleven or twelve years old. I mean, I'm just a a kid. I haven't even turned thirteen yet. I'm not even a teenager yet. And my parents are calling up these these clubs and saying, "Hey, uh, we've got this kid, and he you gotta hear him sing and play guitar. He he'd be great in your club." And you know, sometimes sometimes. Uh, People would be a little biased and say, "What a kid! Are you kidding me?" Uh, and and I, I do have to thank my my parents for fighting and making sure that I I got these opportunities to play in these clubs and, and get exposure uh, and and get experience at a young age. Mm-hmm. We are going to talk about I'm not like everybody else for a little bit here, but the one question that we do have about Rising Star it's not even about the competition itself. Um, it is probably about one of your more memorable moments on that show. Your interpretation of Billie Jean was arguably, arguably your most memorable moment on the show, at least from an audience perspective. It had Ludacris and Kesha, Brad Pitt, literally out of their seats. Um, how did you go about the process of actually reimagining that song in the manner that you did? Because you flipped it on its head. Yes, it was flipped on its head. Now, the story that uh, I recall... Right before I went on the show, I had done all the auditions, and I remember telling myself that I needed a, a, a real power ballad on the show. Something I, I knew I was going to be doing songs like uh, I Put a Spell on You and Whipping Post. Mm-hmm. I knew that. I knew I was walking on, and those would be my first two songs. But I, I knew late, if I got far on the show that I was going to need to have – a power ballad that showcased both my soft uh, and sensitive side <laughs> and gradually going to that hard-edged, uh, passionate, convicted vote. I needed a song that showed off both those sides. Um, now, years ago, I had heard a version, if you're familiar with Soundgarden. Are, are of, you guys course. of course. Of course. <laughs> well, uh, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden had done a... Uh, a slowed down version of Billie Jean that I heard years ago. And I remember my, my, my dad saying before I went to show, Hey, you ever consider doing that version you like to Billie Jean that, that Chris Cornell did years ago. That's and maybe even put your own spin on that. I said, you know what? That, that's not a bad idea. Now, when I heard Chris Cornell's version, I was very impressed with the thought behind it. I'm very impressed. I thought it was, a brilliant idea to take this uh, upbeat song uh, that was originally done by Michael Jackson 
and, and and the original idea behind the song, uh, when you when you listen to Michael Jackson's, is that you're you're when you look at him performing and singing, you're very impressed with the performance aspect of it. You're very impressed with the dancing, uh, all those little hiccups he does in his vocal, and uh, you're you're very impressed with the beat, and but you're not really listening to the story. Now, I want to make sure that when I was doing this song that people were understanding the lyrics and the significance and brilliance behind the story that Michael Jackson wrote. Because a lot of people, I don't think back in the 80s when that song came out, really understood what was actually going on in that story and how brilliantly written the lyrics are. Um, so when I heard Chris Cornell, I said, oh, you know, a slowed down version is the way people are really going to embrace this this, this beautiful poetry. And uh, what, I, what I knew I needed to do was, and, and obviously embellish Chris Cornell's, I, I thought it needed a little harmonic, melodic, and uh, vocal embellishment. And I thought I, I changed some nuances in the vocal, and I changed some, uh, some inflections. And I, I also arranged my own string part, which I thought it was crying for. So what, what I was most proud about with that song was that I really was able to convey that story and, and make people feel every single word of that song because it is a brilliant lyric. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the way I, I did it on the show. And it's also on the debut album. The, the music video was just released to that song. Yeah, I saw it on your YouTube channel. Yes. So obviously we go recommend everybody go out there and subscribe to Jesse's YouTube channel. Not only is that song on YouTube channel, but Preaching Like the Pope is also on the YouTube channel with the music video. Uh, we'll get into that in, in just a second. But I, I, real quick, what made you close with Rain On Me, which is one of my favorite Who songs, by the way? I was just curious oh, about what well, you were thinking. Well, first of all, that song is a masterpiece. Yep, I agree. Absolute, absolute masterpiece. I think that's that might be the Who's greatest song. I, I, I wow! Well, hold on. Before I'm, you before you finish the story, when Sam and I were texting yesterday about this, he said the exact same thing. He said it's the Who's greatest song, and I wrote, "I agree." So we're right there in alignment yeah. with you. Uh, it, 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 it's a it's a it's a masterful piece of work, and that that's that's an example of how rock and roll matured from the fifties into the seventies. It just you know, it, rock and roll kind of started off with three three chords, and then then you, you kind of get into the late sixties and seventies and you're hearing something like Love Rain On Me, which sounds like it could have been written in uh, the 17 or 1800s. Yeah. Not, not necessarily produced like that, obviously. Yeah. But it, just the, 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 uh, the, uh, the way the song is written, the melodically and harmonically, the chord changes, it's, it's just, uh, it, it just sounds like something so, so unique and, and, and different for its time. I, I, and when I first heard that song as a, as a little kid, I was blown away by it, to totally blown away. Um, but, but to the story, uh, just to tell you guys how that came about, uh, I had just done, done Billy Jean and they had, uh, I wanted to do Fortune of Sun by Creedence Clearwater Revival for the, mm -hmm. for, as my, as my first song for the finale. Sam is smiling. Yeah. Yes. I, and I knew that would, that was going to be a perfect, opening song uh, or, or first song rather for that night uh, I knew that was just that was gonna get the votes and I, I knew that the first song had to just be what, what I started off with which was that 
upbeat, uh, you know, just attack through the whole song. Yeah. You know, just a total attack for, for two minutes. But uh, I knew that that second song had to be... You had to blow a, us out of the a water. Bi- a, a, big, uh, a big power ballad or, or something in that sense. And I, I told the producers of the show, is it possible for you guys to approve love love rain on me for the could, could you call up whoever whatever the publishing company is or the who uh, could you could you call them up and get this song approved for me i have to do this song for the finale i know it's the song and i i remember telling my father about him on the phone when i, I was i was in la at the time before i was in new york and my father said oh my you, you've never sung that song before what are you doing you've never practiced i said trust me i said no this is the right song to do yeah oh, wow. I, I don't i don't need to practice it i just know i i know i can sing this one i know it I, I, I'm listening to the song. I know it. Um, so the the only thing I did was I, I lowered the key a half step, and uh, uh, and I, I got I got the approval. I think the day before rehearsals began for the finale, I, I, I was really worried. It, it was it was almost looking like it wasn't going to be approved. But I got a call when I was in my hotel room. It's been approved. We got it. What a gutsy get move. Get ready for rehearsals tomorrow. What'd you have on backup? What was that? What did you have on backup just in case that didn't get approved? Oh my god, I got. I'm, I'm, I have to think back. You know, I I don't even think I had anything as a backup. <laughs> oh, that's had, so awesome had, that you uh, just went for it. I I had more upbeat songs yeah. that were approved, but I really didn't want to do an upbeat song. Right. Uh, for for no, for, you, for my second song in the finale, I wanted to do a power ballad like you no were, Rain on Me. You were absolutely right with this one. You, you crushed. Yeah, it. I, I, absolutely. And uh, I, I was. I'm, I look back at that. Very, very proud of that performance, um, and very proud that I chose it as my finale song. And of course, I was honored to do a song written by Pete Townsend, uh, who, who who wrote many great songs for the Who. Uh, and and yeah, I was I, just overall, I was. Uh, it's it's a great memory for me doing that song. What are some other cover songs over the years that you've kind of put your own spin on? Oh well, over the past few years, uh, I've I've done many covers that I've recorded in my in my basement. I ha- I actually have a lot of ballads that I've. Do done you have a Doors that. cover? What was that? Do you have a Doors cover? Yes, I, I've done. Yes, I've done Doors covers. I, I uh, when I was fourteen, I actually covered "Light My Fire," uh, and I've also covered. Uh, I also covered "The End" when I was. Uh, I will immediately I be searching it. for them two songs. What was that? I will be searching for them two songs. Yes, make sure you go on YouTube. You look up the end, Jesse Kinch, and I, I, I did this song in Nashville uh, after I won Rising Star. It was about a few months after I won the show, uh, and my plan was to do an acoustic performance of the end. And I, I don't, I don't think wow. anybody has ever done an acoustic performance of the end. Uh, not, not, not saying that it's never happened. I'm not trying to take yeah, of course, of the course, first person to do an acoustic uh, performance of the end, but. I uh, had the band go get off the stage, and I wanted to make this a very intimate uh, performance. And I I performed, uh, I think I performed a 10-minute version of the end uh, in Nashville at a club. And it's actually probably one of my favorite performances that I've ever done. Wow. That's how how did how the crowd take it? (laughs) They absolutely loved it. It Awesome. I, I got I got past the uh, uh, the killing the the mother and father yeah. part of the song. <laughs> that that would that's like the main reason why I asked it because I know a lot of people them them lyrics are they're very strange. They, they well 
You're, you're talking about Jim Morrison, who of course. obviously was a, a very creative and unique person. I agree. If if he was off, if he would, if he was not doing drugs, I think he would have done better, bigger, and better things. He had the wrong handlers. He had the wrong handlers, and I and I also don't think there there when you look back to the '60s, I don't think that there was an awareness for a, a drug problems like there are today. I think I think people did not get the help that they needed, and uh, and when you're talking about somebody like Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison, he could have been. In a, in, a, in a permanent psychosis from all the drugs he was doing. Nobody I, would I agree. Have even known about it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, but, but anyway, yeah, I, I, the, the performance is on YouTube at the end. And, uh, but I, I just think it's, it is a, for a song that kind of just pedals on that uh, open uh, uh, D chord, uh, you know, I, I think. Uh, Very slow and melodic. Very slow melodic, and I just I, it, it kind of pedals in that same position. It's right, right in that same position yeah. on the guitar, but uh, I think it is just a masterpiece. I, I could not believe it when I first heard that song. I was so blown away by the artistry and and passion and the poetry in the song. Uh, besides the part where the person goes crazy, in the yeah. Song, which, which, but listen, I'll tell you one thing. When I was first rehearsing that song to do in Nashville. My mom was like, oh, no, don't. why are you going to do that part? My dad's like, oh, God, just let him do it. It's not great. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was kind of, uh, my parents were like kind of at war, like, oh, no, should he do it or should he not do it? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, speaking of masterpieces, right? we both heard Preaching Like the Pope uh, multiple times. I had it on repeat for the last like four days. Very catchy. Uh, very, very soulful. Very, very uh, powerful. Uh, the video is available now on your YouTube, um, as well as I believe if you pre-order on the iTunes, I believe you get it, and then through the Amazon, which we'll have in the episode description. Uh, where did you shoot that video? Did you shoot it in New York? We shot it on a rooftop in Chelsea back oh. in November. Wow! How I guess of all the titles of all the tracks, I should say on the record, how did you choose that one to be the single that the first original single that you wanted out there? Well, that song obviously has a lot of meaning to me, and I'll explain that. After after I won Rising Star, the, 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 the prize for the show was winning a deal with the major label, which is Capitol Records. Right. Uh, and that, that's one of the biggest labels in, 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 in America and the world. Mm-hmm. I was obviously very excited after winning the show, thinking that, oh, you know, I finally have this major deal, and I, I think I'm going to get to go and and record an album of my own. And my original thought was that I had proved something to all these uh, big people that, that were going to be on my team now. I felt that I, I had proved that I knew what was best for my audience. And I, and I, I thought I, I proved to them that I knew what my audience wanted to hear, and that I was really the only one that was truly in touch with my audience. Uh, and, and I didn't realize walking into this situation with the major label just just how out of touch they are with what people really want and, and what they wanted from me. I, I remember the day after the show, I walked into one of the offices, uh, and I just remember them saying, uh, you know, the, the, the label thinks you're a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. What are we going to do with you? Uh, we, we don't... You know, you gotta come in and co-write with with our writers hired by the label, and we gotta try to fit you on the radio. We gotta find something that sounds top forty. We gotta try to find something. I, I don't I don't know what to do with you. That's that that was kind of the attitude. 
Wow. And I, and I remember walking out of there, and I was so, I was so shocked and amazed at how out of touch these people, these businesses. I mean, obviously they're businessmen. These are not. Yeah. These are not musicians. But even being a businessman, how you can look at at what I did on the show and see how people reacted and see the scores that I got every night and obviously sing the songs that I chose. I was choosing all classic songs that I grew up with. During the show, there was pressure on me to do a more modern song. I mean, some of the other producers, I had this one producer on the show that was really in my corner. He was an older British man who used to be the producer for American Idol um, years back. And he, he was just always like, yeah, man, whipping posts. I put a spell on you. Uh, Force it. Great, man. Keep doing it. And then there were other producers on the show that were a little bit younger that were kind of trying to modernize the show a little bit more. And, and They just didn't know the music. Yeah. What was that? It sounds like they didn't. They just didn't know the music. Well, it, was, it wasn't that. They were, they were just like, oh, can you, can you try to put your own spin on uh, – <laughs> you guys are going to laugh at this. But there was this one time, I think it was the third week into the show – um, I think it was either the week I was doing Whip and Post or Seven Nation Army. I wasn't sure. But one of, the, one of them said, oh, could, could you take this Kanye West song and put your own spin <laughs> oh on it? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I, I said, really? I, I, first of all, I said, I could not name one song by Kanye West. All, all I hear Same. is drama on, on TMZ about him and, and, and his wife. I, I don't know any – I can't – I don't know anything about Kanye West. I don't know anything about modern hip-hop. I, I, I just don't follow it. It's not, I, I don't listen to it. Uh, and that was one of the things that was happening on the show. It was, they, they'd come back and they, and, and by, by the, man, by the end of the show, they actually were, were sending songs over to me, modern songs and saying, how about this one? How about that one? And I, I have to tell you, it was just no, 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 no. <laughs> I, kept, I just kept writing back to absolutely no, zero chance, not happening. Uh, I, I, I would have to, literally dissect all these songs and, and, and make them uh, into a, a brand new song for me to do. I, I cannot do these songs in this current state, the way they're written. I, that, it, this is not the traditional songwriting that I grew up on. So, but anyway, to get back to the story leading up to Preaching Like Pope, I, obviously I was shocked at how out of touch these businessmen were. And, uh, and I was uh, amazed at how blind they were to, to what was truly going on. And I, I felt that I was feeling the pulse of my audience. I felt that I, I felt that I had felt them. And, and I, I felt that I knew what they wanted from me. And I, and I knew what I wanted for myself on this album. I knew it had to be completely 100% Jesse Kinch, the Jesse Kinch that you saw in Rising Star. Uh, and, and, and obviously it had to be my own material. I really wanted to do an album my own material. Uh, so, so after the show, I had had that meeting and a few weeks later I had, I had gone out to LA again. Uh, it was, it was October, 2014. It was two months after I won the show and I'd gone out. I went up in the, into Laurel Canyon, into the Hills with some producer that they set me up with. And I, I, I was under the original impression that I was originally under the sorry, excuse me. I was originally under the impression that I was going to be able to go there and maybe do a song or two, do do one of my songs. I don't know what they wanted me to do. They just wanted me to fly out and lay some tracks down for something. Uh, 
and when I got there, it was it was all just songs that 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 people, some young uh, college kids wrote for uh, the, the record company, and they they're giving them to me, and I have to tell you, I was totally shocked at the, how bad the the songs were that they were giving me, and how they did not fit me. They were giving me songs that sounded like the stuff you hear on the radio today. Wow. And they they were just kind of giving me this this uh, this task when I got there. Throw your voice on these songs, and we'll try to throw one of them on the radio and see how it does. We got we got to get you on top forty radio, which is absolutely ridiculous to to think that you could after seeing what I did on the show and seeing how well it went over with people that you start throwing songs that sounded like the top forty songs of today. And throw them, throw them in my faces and tell me just to throw my voice in them. And the biggest problem was they were just treating me as if I was this guy, just just a singer that was just going to come in and throw his voice on anything they gave me. And that I think that was that was the one th- one factor I didn't count in going on a show like that is that when you when you're on one of these shows and you're signed to a label, you're you're not going into the label thinking that you're gonna write your own songs or 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 do what you want artistically you kind of have to prove something to them first that oh if, that, that you can get on radio and get get a get a radio hit and i think that was the completely wrong 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 route for me and i think and like i said one of the factors i didn't count in is that after winning the show and getting this big record deal i would just be thought of as a singer who was going to put his voice on anything they gave him and that that was where they went wrong and that's what they didn't understand and when i was when i was in la and i was doing that little uh recording session for them uh, I, by the end of the trip i just told them hey guys you know i don't think this is working out i, I, you know, I, I told them you know I, you guys just do not uh, you're not feeling the pulse of my audience you're not feeling me uh you don't get me I told him that. What, uh, what kind of what kind of dog do you have? What was that? What kind of dog do you have? Oh my god! I'm really sorry. It's an Australian Shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. Okay, it's all we, good. We love dogs. We here. love dogs. Any you know any any person that walks by the house, he thinks he has to. He thinks he's a. Uh, he thinks he just has to. He's the protector. And bark at them, and uh, it's, it's it's kind of funny to to, to witness and watch. <laughs> I, have to, so, I have to videotape it sometimes. Sorry to interrupt. I just had to ask. But uh, and I know this is kind of a little. This is a little long-winded, but it's okay. We love it. No, no. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just so glad that you're so passionate that you that you didn't yeah. fold and cave into the the big company's plan that you stuck to your heart and what you believed in, and you just said no. Yeah, and, and this and this is this is how preaching like the Pope came about. So I remember I told them that I I didn't want to. I wasn't interested in what they wanted me to do. This is it. I'm done. You guys don't get me. You guys don't get the audience. I was on my way home, going back to the airport, going back to New York. I knew I was going back to where I began. I knew I was going to just be on, on in New York, and I'd have to kind of start over, except I had a little bit of a larger fan base from Rising Star. And I remember passing by a giant billboard while I was in the, the Uber. And I was feeling all these emotions, and I was very proud of myself for my decision that I made. But I was also very concerned about the, the the future the future and I, I passed by this 
this big billboard that said, um, you know, what is life when you gain the world but lose your soul? And, and I remember wow. seeing that, and it was just, uh, some, you know, sometimes you feel like somebody's talking to you. But, but anyway, I'd gone home, and I, I wrote this song called Preaching Like the Pope. And I, I, listen, the, the four lines, they, they speak for themselves. It's, it's, I'm walking out the door, go ahead and shred my finding signatures. I'm back where I began, singing songs, hustling with some amateurs. But that's all right with me, because I'll never be your cookie-cutter puppet, though. I'll be back to break the mold. Yeah, that's what I'll do. The radio don't want me. You keep preaching like the Pope. It says it all. Wow. Those lyrics are actually posted on your Facebook page. <laughs> yes. So you can actually go ahead and just search Jesse's Facebook page. Go ahead and like it. All the lyrics to preaching like the Pope are right there on the Facebook page. But that's a powerful story and something that we appreciate, too. As listen, we are an independent uh, podcast too. We, we've been doing this for over two years and, um, you know, it doesn't sound like a long time, especially when you've been doing what you've been doing for over a decade. Um, but, but we understand and really appreciate it. And no, by the way, nothing you say is long winded. Come on, man. This is awesome. (laughs) Just to get to know you and talk to you. We're excited about it. I can't wait. Um, I can't wait for I'm not like everybody else. I know that there's the vinyl available now, but the actual uh, the CD and, and digital won't be available till about June 1st. Yep. Can you actually walk us through the recording process for that record? Uh, the recording process actually started in it started in early June of 2016. Uh, and I produced the album with my father and Kerry Gordy, who is the son of Barry Gordy, if you're familiar with Motown. Mm-hmm. Mo, Mo, Barry Gordy was the founder of Motown. You obviously know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I produced it with him and, and my father. We were in the studio. I, I had my own engineer that I've been working with since I was 13. Uh, we we actually re- recorded the album. All the uh, uh, instruments and, the, and, my, and my vocals were recorded in um, uh, two weeks, about a week and wow. a half to two weeks. And uh, You weren't we, playing we, any we, games. What was that? You weren't playing any games. Phew. No, you know, and the reason people ask, wow, two weeks. And I said, the, the album had so much pre, you know, it was already. It was four years know, in the so making. Much, so much thought behind it and pre-production at home on my 24 track recorder that by the time I was in the studio, I had my, all my thoughts together and all I had to do was just lay it down mm-hmm. the way I knew how to do it. Um, and then we, you know, we we mixed over the summer, and uh, we, we, you know, we 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 went back a one time or two mixing again, you know, just to be be perfectionists. And uh, the, the, but then the the album uh, obviously will be released digitally on June first. Uh, it it did come out on vinyl yesterday. Right. Which congratulations. And at first, that's awesome. Uh, at twelve o'clock, which is forty minutes from now, twelve o'clock p.m. Uh, the I'm not like everybody else music video will be released on Facebook. Oh, awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah. Awesome. So as I edit this episode, I'm going to be watching that at the same time. I'm looking forward to that. Yes. So, so talk us through, listen, you, you said it earlier in the, uh, in the interview, you only get one debut. Talk us through some of the ups, some of the downs, some of the, you know, trials and tribulations of making that debut record. You said it as well of trying to be that perfectionist. What is that process like? Uh, talk us through that. Well, I, I remember talking to people about perfectionism, uh, you know, engineers that I worked with on the show. And I, I remember some people that gave me advice. Just, you know, you know, you got to just sometimes let a, let, a, let a record be what it is. If there's some, some things that you don't like about it, leave it alone. 
And I just don't agree with that. The way the way I have always done things is, and the, the, and what my father instilled inside of me is that every every second of the song should matter. There shouldn't be a wasted second in a song. And when you go back to the '60s and you listen to some of that stuff, you're listening to "Break On Through to the Other Side" by The Doors, or you're listening to "Smells Like Teen Spirit" by Nirvana. I don't think songs like that have a wasted second. I, I think, I, and I think that's what perfectionism is. Perfectionism isn't an X's and O's type of thing to me. It's a, it's an emotional thing to me. I, I'm, I'm an, a, an emotional perfectionist. I make sure that every single second of the song counts, and that there's emotion in every inflection on every word, uh, and and that every line is sung with conviction, and that that every guitar part sounds has feeling, and all the drum hits have that's the, all the Snare, snare hits have feeling it. Everything. I, I like to make sure that everything is done like that, and 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 I make sure that everything is approved by my ear. What my ear is telling me is perfect. Now, what did you have to do to kind of prepare for this tour that you have coming up? Because I know you got to be excited. Oh, you know, it, it. This is kind of more of a preliminary thing, but I, obviously, I, I am excited. It, it, it's uh, it's really meant to promote the vinyl and. To, to create awareness for that. Uh, it, I, obviously, I have a band. I have a keyboard player, a drummer, and a bass player. We've been rehearsing, uh, and we, we're, we're all ready to go. We're going we're gonna to be heading to Syracuse on Tuesday morning, uh, and then the tour ends on the 21st here in, in Long Island. So we're, we're all very excited about it. And that is the, the record store, record, uh, record store day tour, right? Yes. And that is, what, four or five shows? It's five shows. Just for the folks that are listening, because most of our audience is on the East Coast, uh, could you let us know the dates and where you'll be performing this week? Yes, uh, I, I will actually go. I will go to the schedule right now on my Instagram page. Okay, Tuesday, uh, April seventeenth, I will be at the Sound Garden in Syracuse, New York. Um, Wednesday, the eighteenth, I'll be at the Record Archive in Rochester, New York. Um, Thursday. The 19th, I'll be at the Telegraph in New London, Connecticut. Uh, on the 20th, which is my birthday, I'll be on uh, Dark Side Records in Poughkeepsie, New York. And then 21st, I'll be at Looney Tunes uh, in Long Island, New York. Awesome. Very excited. Um, how can – is it more of a just tickets at the door or how's that work if people want to go see you? Do you know? Oh, oh I, I think uh, I, I think these are just free events. I, I think awesome. they just walk in. It's, it's a, you walk into the record store, I'll, I'll be – performing a, a short set and, and doing a little oh, bit of a awesome. meet and greet. Awesome. So, uh, 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 to anybody who's, who's listening, I'm very excited to sign your albums and uh, meet some of you, with, uh, sign whatever, sign your t-shirts, whatever. Uh, looking forward to it. Awesome. Very cool. Now, we are uh, a nerdy podcast. You know, like I said before we went on the air, we do talk about movies and TV and video games outside of music as well. Um, I do. We do want to ask just a couple of questions about that as well because we, we wouldn't do our due diligence if we didn't. But before that, could you let everybody know where to follow you on social media, your Twitter, your Instagram? And obviously, well, I, jessekinchmusic.com. I, 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 I have a website, which which you can uh, which is kind of the, uh, the base for everything, but... Uh, the, the best way to really find out what's going on with me is probably on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can go on facebook.com slash Jesse Kinch Rocks, uh, Instagram.com uh, slash Jesse Kinch Music, and Twitter is just, uh, I think it's just Jesse Kinch. I don't think there's anything else to it, but those three sites are uh, the best way to really follow what I'm doing every day and, and, 
to see the progress of, of the album and the tour. Now, is it jessekinchmusic.com or is it jessekinch.com? It's just jessekinch.com. Perfect. Awesome. So uh, obviously go ahead, hit that follow button. Make sure that you're following Jesse along with all of his ventures uh, for up through the digital release on June 1st, through the vinyl release now, through that mini tour. And I'm sure for any ventures he has in the future, be sure to follow him there as well. But uh, for films and TV, is there anything that's been catching your eyes or ears lately? Film and TV? Yeah. Um, okay. I, actually, I, I've... Uh been very intrigued by the show The Good Doctor. My wife loves The Good Doctor. <laughs> I, I heard well, good things I, my, about my, the show, my, actually. My parents, my parents were in the medical field for uh, 30 plus years. Gotcha. Um, my mom's a nurse. My, my, my dad was a uh, kind of did like uh, CAT scans and uh, you know radiology, nuclear medicine, stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, for, for years. And uh, we, we heard about the show. And <laughs> we, we all really love it. It's great. So you're the boy wonder in music, but I'm sure they wouldn't have minded if you were the next Doogie Howser. <laughs> no, I don't. I, don't I, I stick with the boy wonder. <laughs> what about? Uh, do you? I, I'm sure you're very busy, but do you have a chance to game at all? Were you ever a gamer growing up, or anything like that? Uh, I, I have to be honest. I have not played a video game since I was 14 years old. I, I used to. I used to like. Uh, I really used to be into the games with the storyline stuff like. Uh, if I look back, things like Final Fantasy, sure, ah, awesome. Any 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 kind of game that had a storyline that was almost like watching a movie, and you were controlling the character. Yeah, that's anything, kind of anything like that. Yeah, that's kind awesome. of where games are now. There's a lot of wonderful games out there with very, very powerful stories. We'll say that as a game coming out next Friday with a story called God of War that we're really looking forward to. Um, Jesse, anything else you want to add before we before we let you go? Uh, I just want to thank you guys for taking the time to interview me. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad I got to do your show. Uh, anybody who's listening, uh, once again, the tour will start uh, on the 17th. It ends uh, on the 21st here on Long Island. Uh, can't wait to perform some songs to you, sign some albums. Uh, it's going to be great. And uh, just, just thank you guys once again. You, you guys are great. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jesse. Stay on the line real quick. But everybody, that was the very special bonus episode of We Podcast and We Know Things with Jesse Kinch. Again, look forward to that tour. And I'm not like everybody else, available now on vinyl, but coming out June 1st digitally. We'll have the link in the description to go order it. Uh, We'll see you this weekend for episode 87. That was the boy slash man wonder, Jesse Kinch.